Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. Can I just say, you're looking very... I'd say this is your classic Jeff look. You're wearing a yellow mustard-coloured jumper, which really suits you. This is your sort of default option, isn't it? It's my default podcast option. It's usually because I am in a dressing gown and then I think, oh God, I've got to do the podcast and I just throw on what's at the top of the sweatshirt drawer. For some reason, it puts me in mind of Barack Obama. I'll tell you in the following way. <laughs> a lot of people compare us. Exactly. He used to apparently have the same lunch every day in the White House. Literally the same lunch, so that he didn't have to decide what he was going to have for lunch. Now, that's so interesting, because they say that about Steve Jobs as well, that he wore the same thing every day, because he wanted to take away the daily decision of what to wear. So you're actually the Steve Jobs of this podcast. Yes, yes. Well, sometimes you wear other things. I do. So maybe I'm more of the Steve Wozniak of this podcast, which I think I'm a bit more comfortable with. Can I ask you about sushi? Well, I don't eat fish. Mm, I I happen to go to the house of a relative of somebody who works for me. I won't embarrass them. And they had such nice sushi. And generally, sushi is a bit, can be very hit or miss. It comes from a well-known supermarket, which I won't name. But honestly, it was a cut above the rest. And then I happened upon this supermarket the next day and I bought the sushi again. Does this suggest this is the moment you become Obama-like and you just eat sushi Ah. every day from now onwards? Do you think that might be the answer? Think what you would do with the extra time if you weren't thinking about what to have for your lunch. If you went out to work, I know you do sometimes go out, would you take a packed lunch with you? No, because I'm I'm not organised enough, but I always respect the packed lunch maker. I've just been thinking I've got to start taking packed lunches. What sort of lunchbox would you have? Uh, I think a lunchbox is a kind of, is that, that feels like, or, or what do you mean, what's the pattern I'd have on it? Yeah, I'm thinking uh, when I was at school, I had a Kermit the Frog lunchbox, for example. See, it's interesting. Here's my memory of this. I do not remember having a lunchbox. Maybe your parents sent you to school with a Karl Marx lunchbox and you've repressed the memory. Maybe I had school dinners. Uh... I think I had school dinners. But I think when I went to, um, when I was living in America, which I did when I was seven and again when I was 12, it was quite a big thing that you take your lunchbox to school. And what would you have on your lunchbox? And would you have a peanut butter butter and jelly sandwich? That's exactly what everybody thought as soon as you mentioned American lunchbox. Do you think PB&J? That's what I associate with American kids. I do like a PB&J sandwich. It's, it's a great sandwich. I'm quite partial to a sort of an almond butter. My wife has an array of these butters. 
Does she? She does, yeah. We, I can arrange a tasting for you the next time you're around. Maybe we should compare notes on this. She'd enjoy it because I am not that interested in the um, finer differences between an almond butter and a cashew butter. I feel I should update you on my swimming pond zapper, by the way, because I was in the ponds the other day, a couple of days ago, and Dan, the lifeguard, said to me, have you got the... <laughs> the zapper. He did a little yeah. mime. And then I was actually, I zapped the other day and the guy said to me, it was passing in his speedos. And he said, you know, don't point that thing at me. What, what's, the zap, what's the zapping situation? Uh, what's it looking like? He said, when- I said, I said it's 15.2, although it, on the board it says 14. But, you know, uh, my thing just, uh, as Dan had explained to me, my just, uh, just does the surface, whereas his, the, the, the thermometer is a bit deeper. I just think yours is more accurate. No, but his is a thermometer which sits in the water. Yes, I used, I used to have one of these. Attached to a string yes, or something. Yes, it bobs around. It was like bought for a pound, he said. Uh, well, we, we need some kind of independent expert. A third zapper. Yes, yes, yes. You know, some, some third kind of opinion. zapping adjudicator. And then yeah. we could have a contest between your thermometer and Dan's thermometer. Yeah. I'm imagining lots of people in Speedos standing on the side. Z- zapping away. Zapping away. <laughs> cheering on their favoured thermometer. Anyway, I just want to tell you that the zapper is now an accepted part of the situation i did actually have a very sweet thing this morning which is i went for a walk rather than swim my back's slightly painful i think it's partly a i fell over at the june park run do you remember i said i'd gone to this yes i didn't exactly fall over but i sort of stumbled a bit like in the tv debate of 2015 (laughs) (laughs) anyway except that wasn't on a june uh um uh anyway leave that to one side we've never talked about that actually um anyway so i so so i went for a walk and I saw Dylan the dog. He bounded up to me and jumped up to me like I was my oldest friend. Did you have food in your pockets? Nope. Maybe you were sniffing out your zapper. And as you're talking of sniffing, you'll be interested to hear this. I'm just giving you the whole update, like stream of consciousness. You didn't ask. The fox situation, the Miliband Thorntons are winning against the fox. Oh, so what have you done then? Put up an electric fence? New compost, new compost bin, wedgie. It's being wedged in to a big green recycling bin. And a brick on top. And closed. You've given the fox a wedgie. Let's see whether it's a long-term solution. <laughs> Although I am really, I was really interested in that camera that the person showed us last week. Before we started recording today, Ed was saying, I really have very much to, <laughs> to tell you. And I, I really feel that this is... You think I brought my A game? Yeah, people overuse roller coaster as a metaphor, but that was a real <laughs> roller coaster. <laughs> I mean, it was basically just a stream of consciousness of the sort of all the kind of things that happened to me, really. We should do the Ed Daily where you just do that. Um, Should we talk about what we're talking about? Yes, this week we are looking at the rising cost of childcare amidst the cost of living crisis. New research has found that almost two-thirds of family are paying more or the same for their childcare as they do their rent or mortgage, with one in four parents saying they've had to cut down on food, heat and clothing to afford childcare. To find out how this compares to other countries and discuss what can be done to help parents, we're talking to friend of the pod and researcher Christine Berry, Dr Kate Hardy from the University of Leeds, and Jolie Brearley, who founded the charity Pregnant Then Screwed. So what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful, and this is going to sound like an advert, but I, s- I swear that it isn't, and I mentioned this to you 
off microphone last week is Papo's Bagels. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite interested in this bagel situation. It's an emerging bagel situation. Yes, she, my wife is very snobby about a bagel. She, for a yeah. long time, was of the opinion that you couldn't get a good bagel in London, which yeah. meant not that you can't get a good bagel in London because there's all these sort of traditional bagel bakeries, but she likes it New York style, which is where she lived before moving here. And there's yeah. only this one place, which was two buses away. So we would very rarely have them. But there's a place near us which delivers nationwide that have started doing them. And they are so good, it's becoming a problem for me. Let me just ask you this. Yes. Is a bagel satisfying after you eat it as well as before you eat it? Do you mean, do I feel regret when I've eaten the bagel? Do I feel not full? Do bagels bagels deliver what they promise is what I'm really asking. I I think these ones do. Everything bagel, poppy seed bagel, sesame seed bagel, plain bagel... Uh, salt bagel, onion bagel. Uh, uh, I think I've run out of bagels. I do like an everything bagel, but I, f- I feel a bit embarrassed every time I order one because it's like something a child would invent. What is the everything in an everything bagel? It's all those things on the bagel. Poppy seed, sesame seed, onion. Onion, everything, yeah. Mm, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, I can't make my mind up. Can I have one with everything on it, please? So that is a good reason to be cheerful. What, what about a make-your-own-bagel shop? Now you are talking. I knew you'd finally come round to it. What's uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, look, I don't. I hope you're not going to take this the wrong way. You made two, I thought, rather good suggestions about what we could watch. Uh huh. You suggested we crashed, which I said was a bit trashy but enjoyable. And then the other one was the dropout, which is really good. We tried the dropout. It didn't really land with the other person who watches with me. You're going to have to choose between me and Justine at some stage. Yeah, and then, and then We Crashed didn't land either. The Dropout then, is a much better show than We Crashed. But then I discovered Mae Martin. Oh, yeah. It's called Feel, Feel Good. Good, yeah. And I really like it. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? I mean, actually, Justine likes it a bit less than me, but I really like it. Yeah. I think she's very funny, and I think it's very funny and quite poignant and... It made me feel good. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Christine Berry, who is author, researcher, and definitely qualifies as a friend of the podcast, having been on uh, before, talking just during lockdown, about some of the issues we're going to talk about today. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's such an interesting conversation because it feels like the whole system of childcare in this country is facing the sort of perfect storm. It was pretty shonky to begin with. It then faced the whole issues around COVID and now these issues of inflation and costs. I mean, just talk to us from your perspective about where things are at. Everyone I speak to, if you speak to anyone in the sector, from childcare workers to parents to nursery managers, if you read any of the reports that are coming out, whether it's from campaign groups like Pregnant Then Screwed, from the TUC, from foundations and trusts, everyone seems to agree that the sector is on its knees. like It's in real crisis, in emergency mode. So this is why for the government to come out and say, oh, it's okay, we're going to solve this problem by cutting the regulations on uh, how many children a member of staff can look after, it's absolutely bonkers. It's like looking at a pileup on the motorway and saying, oh, the problem is that we're going to raise the speed limit. Yeah. Not only are you completely ignoring... <laughs> the real problems, but you're actually going to put people at risk in your supposed attempts to solve them. Just for our listeners, I'm sure lots of them will be familiar with it, but just lay out the nature of the current crisis when you say the sector is on its knees. Mm. Give us the sort of low points, if you like. 
So the first thing I think is nursery finances, so which have been precarious for a very long time. So the Early Years Alliance uncovered some really shocking documents last year through Freedom of Information, which found that the government's 30 so-called free hours of childcare um, that working parents are entitled to for kids over three was being deliberately, knowingly underfunded by less than two thirds of what it was actually costing to provide. So parents are making up the difference through higher fees. My nursery charges £16 a day for lunch and snacks, for example, which call me crazy, but I don't think my toddler is eating £16 worth of food. The reason that parents are not up in arms about that and angry with the nursery is because everyone tacitly knows that it's subsidising the free hours that aren't really free because the government doesn't fund them properly. And that, of course, means that my nursery is largely populated by middle class white people who can afford to pay those top up fees because anyone who's on a low income is not going to be able to afford them. My history may be wrong here, but it used to be 15 hours free. And then I think David Cameron in 2015 promised 30 hours. Am I right about this? It's a very complicated kind of patchwork of subsidies. There's still a 15 hours entitlement, I believe, for certain vulnerable and disadvantaged groups of kids once they hit two. And then right. once you hit three, there's 30 hours free. But that even that is not universal. It's only for parents that are working a certain number of hours, earning a certain amount. And the key point is that it's not been funded properly. I, I think I remember at the time when Cameron promised this, that I remember feeling like, where is the funding going to be for this? It does slightly boggle the mind, to use your phrase, that they funded this but not funded this. Yeah, it is. You know, you should look up the documents that the Early Years Alliance uncovered. There's presentations from the consultants that say, we believe that fees for younger children will be hiked by up to 30% to make up this shortfall. So they knew this. And also, which is why the ratios thing makes me so mad, they also knew that providers were going to cut staff ratios to the bare minimum, the bare legal minimum, in order to kind of balance the books because the government wasn't funding the free entitlements properly. It's already the case that parents are being squeezed through higher fees, staff are being squeezed through higher workloads. And that's before you then add on top of that, the challenges of COVID, which again, nurseries haven't been properly supported with, which means that a lot of nursery finances now are really at breaking point. Some are being bought up by big private equity owned chains because particularly kind of smaller independent businesses, one man bands are saying, screw this for a lark, I'm going to retire, I'm going to sell up. So you're seeing a concentration of the sector in the hands of these big chains, which are basically, if you think Southern Cross or Four Seasons, you know, the care home chains that became household names when they ignominiously collapsed, it's the same model. It's the same debt laden, financialized, extractive model that we're now allowing to basically take over the sector that we rely on to look after our babies and toddlers. So you've got this underfunding issue, you've got the impact of COVID, and then you've got inflation and the cost of living crisis. That is also impacting, obviously, on parents, but also on providers, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Energy costs and also even the rise in the national minimum wage. I know people, even at like non-profit nurseries, are saying that they are really struggling just to make ends meet. And again, with COVID, a lot of nurseries are trying to leave windows open to ventilate better, which in turn is pushing up their energy bills. They've not been supported with things like ventilation systems. So it's just little things like that that are all adding to the cost burden and to the unsustainability of the system. And just to be clear about this, that's all laid on top of the existing situation, which is that we've got some of the highest costs in the world. 
Yeah, so the the UK childcare system for parents is one of the most expensive in the world. The amount that we spend as a percentage of GDP, now as a country, as that the government spends on childcare is lower than the average for the OECD. And just talk to us a little bit about the impact on the profession because you've got staff leaving. This is a crisis, isn't it? Yeah. So the the Coram Family and Childcare Trust annual survey, which is one of the key barometers for how the sector is doing, said this year that there was a real sense of a recruitment crisis that many people they spoke to said there was a recruitment crisis. Almost all local authorities said they were having difficulty recruiting staff. And it's not surprising because these are skilled, highly trained professionals doing a critical, socially vital job looking after our children. The average wage, the average hourly wage is £7.42 for childcare workers. The responsibilities are immense and they're only going up. Which is extraordinary, isn't it? Because that is actually below the national living wage. Yeah, and I think part of that is because of apprentices. It shows what a low-paid workforce it is. Some of the childcare workers were saying, I could go and serve refreshments on a train or stack shelves in a supermarket and earn more money for less stress and less responsibility and less risk. They've been putting their health at risk on the front line of the pandemic with no support with PPE, with testing, often no right to sick pay, picking up more and more responsibilities for vulnerable children that they were looking after because social services were collapsing during the pandemic. It's not a surprise that there's a recruitment and a retention crisis. So again, you know, for the government to suggest that the answer to the childcare crisis is to demand even more of these workers who are already being stretched beyond what anyone could reasonably ask of somebody. It's just absolutely the wrong response. And just because it's important to cover this, talk to us about the children with special educational needs and disabilities and the particular circumstances facing them in in this situation. A lot of nurseries and childcare settings during the pandemic said that they became more concerned about kids with special educational needs and disabilities that were in their care because of the effects of lockdown, because of the effects on social services. And this is another reason why it's such a big concern, I think, that you're seeing the consolidation of the sector in the hands of these big profit-driven chains, because, you know, partly because childcare is so underfunded and the, the operating margins are relatively fine. And that means that they're not particularly interested in serving kids that are going to cost them more, such as kids with special educational needs and disabilities, or kids whose parents can't afford to pay more. And just to be sort of clear about this, there is clearly a kind of ethical, social inequality dimension to this, but there is also an economic dimension to this, isn't there? This isn't sort of terrible social policy, but good economic policy. It's terrible social policy and terrible economic policy. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely dreadful economic policy. The underfunding has been justified on the basis that it was unaffordable to spend more on childcare. So the government is viewing it solely as a cost, you know, an economically unaffordable cost. But the Women's Budget Group has done research that's found that investing in childcare delivers twice as many jobs and more tax revenue than investing in construction. It's an investment in a piece of essential social infrastructure. It not only creates jobs directly in the care sector, which could be good jobs, much better quality jobs than they currently are if it was funded properly. It creates jobs indirectly by enabling women, mothers primarily, to go back to work and to carry on doing the things that they love and contributing to society and paying taxes. The average price of a full-time nursery price for a one-year-old in this country is now just over £14,000 a year. If you compare that to the minimum wage or the average wage, for it's obvious that the sums are just not going to add up for so many women. They're going to be pushed out of the workforce altogether, staying at home. 
none of that is to suggest that staying at home and looking after kids is not work sure. because of course it is sure. looking after my son on maternity leave was yeah. uh, the hard the hardest job I ever did but it was also by some distance the most poorly paid job I ever did because we don't value yeah. that as a society either so it, it makes no sense whichever way you look at it, it makes no sense that we don't value this more highly so so far so gloomy I think it is important to say to our listeners isn't it that it doesn't have to be this way in the sense of we are more or less an outlier now, the UK, on this. And, you know, there are other countries, many other countries, who do it better than us. Yeah, there are absolutely. And especially the Nordic countries, I think people often point to. So Sweden has a kind of properly universal childcare system where I believe costs are capped by the state 3% of salary. There are many examples that we could look to across the world where people do it better. I, I can't help feeling that and I suspect our listeners will feel this too, I don't want to speak for them, that listening to you and listening to this conversation, people will think, this is scandalous. Why is it not more of a scandal? And is the truth about this, that the gender dimension to this is kind of seen by too much in political debate as a sort of marginal issue? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I felt that throughout the pandemic. Even then, it was obvious that the sector was in crisis and nobody was talking about it. And I think a big part of it is the gender dimension. Every time I write about childcare, guaranteed, I get at least one troll on Twitter saying, if you can't afford children, then you shouldn't have had them. It matters for the kids. It matters for society. It matters for all of us. But also, with all the rows about petrol prices at the moment, you don't have people saying, oh, well, if you couldn't afford to drive a car, you shouldn't have bought one. <laughs> so why is that the way that we talk about the literal continuation of the species? <laughs> it's, you know, it makes no sense to me. So even as a woman, before I became a parent, I had no concept, absolutely no concept of how completely broken our childcare system was because it sort of didn't really affect me. I'm sort of almost ashamed to say it. So I had friends who it did affect, but until you become a parent, I think yeah. the magnitude of it just doesn't really quite hit you. That's a really interesting point. Where would you start in all this, Christine? You know, we have on the podcast, The Jeffocracy. What, where would you begin? It's about how we provide childcare. So the first, the most obvious immediate step would be for the government to stop underfunding the free hours. Right? So that's something that they could fix straight away. But I think the changes that we really need to see are more fundamental structural changes, a shift from funding by subsidising demand, so basically kind of giving parents these vouchers to spend on childcare, which then gets provided by the market, wherever the market decides or whatever fees the market decides, to shift to funding childcare more like the way we fund schools, where we say this is a universal public service and government is going to spend money to guarantee that the supply, the provision, is available everywhere for everybody who needs it at rates that they can afford. Well, look, Christine, this has been a very enlightening conversation. It's a bad scene, uh, fundamentally, but it's really important we talk about it. And thank you to you for coming on, but also thank you to you for talking about this and writing about this. Uh, Christine Berry, thanks for joining us. Mm, thanks so much for having me. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're going to talk now to Associate Professor in Work and Employment Relations at the University of Leeds, Kate Hardy. Thanks for joining us. And you've recently, as I understand it, completed some research on the impact of COVID on early years care and education. And what you found, broadly speaking, is that inequality of access was exacerbated by the pandemic. So the situation we're in now is that we're in this cost of living crisis is there a danger that these inequalities and, and disadvantages are going to become even harder to reverse? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you just said, one of the things we found is that particularly in the most deprived areas, those were the areas that saw the biggest decline in people accessing early years care and education. For example, some parents told us that they couldn't use nurseries when they really wanted to because they were on minimum wage They needed to get to work, but they couldn't even afford the bus fare to get to the nearest nursery that didn't have add-on fees. The number of nurseries offering totally free hours is declining as well. And and this isn't necessarily profiteering on the part of providers. It's, It's tough for them. Yeah. So it's partly the government knowingly pays less per hour than it costs to provide that that care and education. And really what we found in the research is that someone is paying for this. It's not the government. It is parents, but actually even more, it's workers in the sector. So it's workers who are 90 plus percent female on very, very low wages. So one in eight childcare and education workers in early years earns less than five pounds an hour. And the average pay in the sector is £7.42, which is below even, you know, the women's average. And women earn less in general than men. So women's average is £11, pay in the sector £7.40. So effectively what's happening is the government underpays the the providers and that, that cost is borne by parents and importantly, some of the lowest paid workers in society. Kate, tell us about the impact of the pandemic in particular on the inequality of access. What we found, as I said, is that 
It was most deprived areas that aren't accessing childcare, but also in addition, it's childcare workers themselves who also can't access it often because they can't afford it. What we think we're going to see as we come out of the pandemic and as things get more expensive is that the costs for um, nurseries and childminders are going to go up. So gas bills are going to go up for them. And there's only one way they can pass on that cost. And that cost will be to parents because they can't actually pay workers any less. And the, um, as you'll probably know, the, the government's response to this is to increase ratios between workers and children. And effectively, what that is, is saying that the answer to this is putting babies in danger. Babies and toddlers put in more danger as a way of addressing that. So it increases inequality of access, not just financially, but for families who aren't willing, for example, to have a baby under one year old being with three other babies, four babies being looked after by one person. You mentioned this ratios issue. We should get on to this. Talk to us just in in layperson's terms, if you would, about what the current ratios are. The government previously attempted to raise these ratios in terms of the number of kids that each staff member would look after. Just give us some background to it, if you would. Yeah, sure. For children under one, who are effectively babies, there needs to be one member of staff for three babies. And as a manager said this to me once, you can have safely one on each hip and one on your lap. But once you go beyond that, you can't you, you can't even physically manage more than that. So um, the government is suggesting now that that ratio goes to four. So that would be one worker for four babies under one year old. For anyone who has children or has ever engaged in children, there'll be you know instinctively you just know that this is a really dangerous, unmanageable situation. So that cuts staffing costs, but also presumably you'd see a lot of redundancies in a sector that has already been hit very, very hard in terms of people working in it. You would think there might be redundancies if it wasn't for the fact that there is an incredible recruitment and retention crisis in the sector. So a lot of people have left, not just because of the pandemic, but the pandemic has really accelerated people leaving. And the reasons for that are self-evident in a way. The pay is absolutely terrible. There's no career progression. So we spoke to a woman who had worked in early years for 30 years and she was still on minimum wage. And the responsibilities are just spiralling. So particularly during the pandemic, early years workers found them doing things that bordered on social work. So, you know, They might be the only contact with people where there might be suspected domestic violence, for example. They were having to do assessments to see if um, special needs needed picking up. And if you look at the work that these people do, often it's referred to as childcare, which is fine, and that's not to denigrate care, but it's a really, really educational job. They're constantly assessing, is this child where they need to be in terms of speech, language, physical movement? Do they need any additional support? Does this family need additional support? And the responsibility of that, combined with very low pay and no career progression, just means people are absolutely flying out of the sector. So I don't think there would be redundancies because there's so many vacancies, actually, in the sector because people are going to places like retail, almost anything that doesn't, you know, it's the same rate of pay but doesn't carry that responsibility for bringing the next generation up. We're seeing a lot of nurseries as well 
certainly struggling and perhaps not reopening in the wake of the pandemic. Can you talk to us a bit about why that is and what the implications of that could be for the future of nurseries here in the UK? While some aren't closing, what's happening is that the conditions behind closed doors are getting worse. We asked nurseries how they stayed open for those that did stay open. Lots of them used up all their reserves. Lots of them uh, took on debt. But a lot of them changed staff conditions. So sick pay, holiday pay, those sorts of things um, were taken away from staff. They were put on new contracts. So even when they're not closing, you know, the quality of care and the conditions of work are changing behind closed doors. But also when they are closing, there's two other things going on. One of which is where nurseries, independent nurseries close, they're being taken up by by major childcare companies who are often owned by hedge fund companies and are, are owned overseas. And they're kind of amassing quite a lot of nurseries. But also what we did see is where nurseries were most at threat of closure, it was in the most deprived areas. So actually, it'll be very uneven if, if nurseries do start to close, if there's another shock, for example, it will be very uneven. And again, it will be the most deprived children who won't be able to access early years. We've talked about how this sort of directly uh, affects providers and parents and so on, but how does it affect women's career prospects, this appalling childcare situation we've got in this country? In terms of the pandemic, we found, people won't be surprised to hear this, that it was largely women who, when childcare closed, it was largely women who changed their hours dropped their jobs and took on that care. And it was women who have also reported impacts on their career progression. For example, not taking up promotion opportunities because they don't know if they'll be able to access the right kind of childcare to enable that. And essentially, the cost of childcare just means it doesn't make sense. If there's a two-person partnership, it doesn't often make sense unless you earn really high above the average wage for both people to be in work full time. So as an example, um, I have two children under three. And even with the government supports, our costs are £1,600 a month. And this is outside London. So it needs quite big salaries for people to be able to pay that and make it worthwhile. And generally, because of the gender pay gap, it's women who earn less. And so logically, it's women who, who take that pay cut, step out of the career path, go part time. And we know, obviously, that part time work is not as well paid. It's very um, feminized and it does impact uh, long term on career progression. Before we started recording, we were saying it looks pretty bleak and you said don't don't worry I've got some optimism for you <laughs> um, so I thought now might be uh, an opportune moment to to bring some of that optimism in um, it's it's specifically how it's done elsewhere there isn't a lot of optimism to be found in England specifically but if you look in a broader way Scotland and Ireland for example are taking this issue very seriously so in Scotland they're ensuring that the rates paid by local authorities to the sector ensure that there's at least a living wage for all workers in the sector. They've also got a policy where they are recruiting graduates for the most deprived areas and they're paying those graduates to go and work and lead the sector in those areas. Ireland has, has got really quite a strong workforce strategy. So again, they're, they're putting a lot of emphasis on a graduate-led workforce to kind of just, and paying to support people, 
even if they're already working in the sector, can, to continue that. And they want to ensure that there is a career framework in the sector. The one thing I can point to in England um, is that there's out of the pandemic, there have been some kind of um, grassroots groups who've emerged. So one is called the Nanny Solidarity Network. And they emerged to support nannies who are often migrants who were either fired by their employers when the pandemic hit or who were asked to work in very dangerous conditions. So they've started kind of coming together and trying to um, collectively organise to improve conditions in the sector. Where do you think the government should start, Kate? I mean, if the government was interested in tackling this... The first thing to do is to make sure that those 30 hours a week that three-year-olds are entitled to are paid at the rate at which it costs to deliver them. That's a very simple fix. Next step, I think, would be to expand the 30 hours to all three-year-olds. So at the moment, and bearing in mind that early years is education, it's not just someone watching over children, it's teaching them the basics of reading, socialising them, it's education. The poorest three-year-olds are only entitled to 15 hours a week under the current system. Rolling that 30 hours out universally to every child, regardless of the parental employment status, regardless of income, that would be, even within the system, a next really good step. And really, I think the 30 hours needs to be expanded to one-year-olds. That needs to be the aim, because there's a gap at the moment between the end of paid maternity leave and when a child is three, well, three and a half usually, when people are paying thousands of pounds. And that's when the impact on women's careers really starts to kick in. And that's when the inequalities of access also start to kick in. So I think those are even working within the current system. That's before talking about, you know, universal state funded access with with nurseries being run by local authorities rather than by the private sector. Well, look, it's really important subject. It, it should be getting a lot more public attention. We're, we're really grateful to you for all your work on this and for joining us. Kate Hardy, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Now, to talk further about this crucial issue, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Joely Brearley, who is the founder of a brilliant organisation called Pregnant and Then Screwed. Joely, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Give us, before we get into the, the detail of this subject, give us a bit of background on, on your organisation. What is it? Why did you start it? What's the reaction been? I set up Pregnant Then Screwed in 2015 after my own experience of pregnancy discrimination. I was four months pregnant with my first child. I informed my employer that I was expecting and the next day they sacked me by voicemail. And my employer was a children's charity. And I should say say it was a woman who uh, sacked me from my job. Lots of people think that it's men that do this to other women. Actually, we find that it's just as common amongst women as it is amongst men. And so initially it was a place for women to tell their stories of pregnancy and maternity discrimination anonymously, a safe space to share their experiences. And it's since mushroomed and grown and we now have a free legal advice line for women experiencing pregnancy or maternity discrimination. We help women take their employers to tribunal. We support them through that process and we campaign and lobby on lots of issues that create what we call the motherhood penalty. So the notion that women don't have equal access to the labour market. And that includes childcare. 
which is why we're here today. It is. And I saw you retweeted this week a thread you were tagged into from um, Charmaine Lovegrove, who lives in Germany. And I'm just going to read what she posted. Just got the bill for the twins' nursery fees in Berlin. And then she goes on to list what the nursery offers. It includes two childminders uh, for, for 10 children, a, a dog to play with, lunch and two snacks every day, organic food, all weather park visits. And then she reveals the price. €23 Euros a month per child, five days a week, seven hours a day. And she adds, in the UK, we would be paying £3,000 a month. So, I mean, the, there was a huge reaction to, to that. Why... Why do you think we're so oblivious to how much worse we have it here in the UK compared to our neighbours? We have the second most expensive childcare system in the OECD as a proportion of our income. The only country that has slightly more expensive childcare is Cyprus, but it's marginally more expensive. We're oblivious to it because we've always had very expensive childcare. We've never had properly subsidised childcare. And this issue just isn't being talked about at a government level. It's not prioritised. And we know that there are lots of people, sadly, in the UK that have a sort of slightly backwards approach to childcare and think, it's your lifestyle choice. We hear that a lot. It's your lifestyle choice to have a child. You should pay for it. But what they don't understand is that actually investing in childcare is just that. It's an investment. And we know that investing in childcare yields more pound for pound than the same investment in construction. That's more jobs, uh, a lower welfare bill. There's so much to gain from investing in childcare, not least the fact that you reduce the attainment gap between the richest and the poorest children. So it's an investment in children, an investment in families. Jolie, you recently released some research into how paying for childcare is hitting families in the current cost of living crisis. And the figures are really pretty shocking. C- can you just run us through some of the, the headlines of that survey you did? Yeah, so the survey was with 27,000 parents, so a really good pool. And it found that for almost two thirds of parents, they pay the same or more for their childcare as they do their rent or their mortgage. And that is resulting in one in four parents either skipping meals or foregoing heating and fuel in order to pay for it. So our childcare system is pushing parents into poverty. Furthermore, what it found was that 41% of parents told us there is at least a six-month waiting list at their local childcare provider. And one in five parents told us their local childcare provider has closed within the last 12 months. So we have a childcare system that is neither affordable or accessible for working parents. And, you know, that's that, that means we don't just have a cost of living crisis. We have a cost of working crisis. Families cannot afford to go to work. And Boris Johnson recently stated that the evidence shows the way to dig yourself out of poverty is work. And of course, that is absolutely true. But for many families, they cannot afford to work. It's a grim situation. We're always looking for optimism on this podcast. What makes you hopeful? I guess the reaction to the research that you put out and pregnant then screwed generally. But what, what makes you hopeful specifically when you look to the horizon and think how things might improve here in the UK? 
The backlash against the recent statement by the government that they're going to look at ratios from parents and from groups has been very hopeful in the parents are saying, look, no, this isn't going to work. We can't tweak things. We can't risk health and safety of children. We can't put more pressure on childcare workers. We need proper investment. We need a holistic approach to our childcare system. We need an independent review so we can understand what is going wrong and why we have this failing childcare sector when we compare it to other countries. Also, what gives me hope is what is happening across the water in America, Canada and New Zealand. Canada have just invested $30 billion in their childcare sector to create a childcare system that is costs no more than $10 a day. $10 a day. I mean, for the parents that I work with, it makes them weep when I tell them that that's what Canada is doing. And they've not done this out of the goodness of their hearts. They've not done it to be kind to mums. They've done it because they've crunched the numbers and they've figured out that this is really good for the economy. Quebec, the province of Quebec, has been subsidising childcare heavily for a number of years. They used that as a test case and they found that for every dollar they invested in childcare, they got between $1.60 and $2.80 back into the wider economy. So that research and data must be seen by our government. They have to understand this in order to prioritise childcare. So with other countries like Canada and America looking at investing in our childcare sector, it gives me hope that we will eventually follow. Talk to us about what Pregnant Then Screwed is calling for from government directly now on this. We want an independent review of the childcare sector because we don't want to put forward solutions. That's been done over the last six years by a variety of different organisations, but it feels quite piecemeal. And what tends to happen is we all create this big uproar. It's all over the press and the government bolts on 10 million here, 100 million here, but it's not fixing the problem. We know, for example, that there's 2.3 billion sat in the government coffers of unspent tax-free childcare. The government distributes childcare funding by giving the money to local authorities, but the National Day Nurseries Association found that there is £55 million not being spent by councils on childcare. That's money they're being given to spend on childcare that's not reaching the sector. So there are financial solutions and non-financial solutions. The only way we get to grips really with what the problem is and how we fix it is to have a holistic approach, is to do an independent review. So that's what we're calling for. Without getting too much into the weeds, why isn't that money being spent? Is it that it's a difficult system for parents to navigate or are there other factors? I mean, it's a really difficult, the tax-free childcare system is the most galling system I have ever used in my life. I, I gave up on it and had to ask my partner to do it. I almost threw my laptop out the window. It's really frustrating. You have to do it every three months. The way they collect the money is really confusing. It's confusing for the childcare provider. It's also confusing for the user. But not a lot of people know about it either. It's really not being promoted properly. Just let's talk briefly at the end more widely about Pregnant Then Screwed. Talk to us. You gave us a hint at the beginning about the range of work you do and how people can get involved. 
Yeah, so people can get involved. We're doing a march on the 29th of October this year in 10 cities across the UK called March of the Mummies. And everybody will dress up. It's obviously close to Halloween. So everybody dresses up as mummies, the walking dead, which isn't particularly difficult for mothers. There'll be talks, there'll be demands. And one of our demands is an affordable, good quality childcare system. We also want to see all jobs to be advertised as flexible by default. And we want to see ring-fenced, properly paid parental leave. We've already had 4,000 people sign up to attend that march. But you can also get involved by following us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook with at Pregnant Then Screed. And if people face discrimination like the discrimination you faced at work, they can contact you. Yeah, we have a free advice line which operates for 70 hours a week. So you will always get a call straight back. And the phone number is 0161 222 9879. So please do give us a call if you're facing any problems at work or you have any questions about your maternity pay or anything like that. Jolie Brilly, it's a great organisation. It's a depressing subject, but but, you know, government d- does need to act on it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty grim, isn't it? When Jean was at nursery, I remember thinking that something was broken. Firstly, costs, like even, even with my decent income. It was a, a shock, especially yeah. before he got to three. And then, and it's sort of uncomfortable to say, but there was a visible difference in in background in the parents that I would see at nursery compared to occasions when I'd take him to a sure start centre and that shouldn't be a factor if the 33 hours are working and are are set up properly do you see what I mean yeah yeah yeah, completely completely one thing I've said before is that it does feel inevitable that big change is coming broadly to childcare, parental leave. We heard Jolie talking about Canada, America. We've heard about Ireland. And, and these aren't the Nordic nations where they're operating in a yeah, different yeah. type of welfare state. It just feels like it's too present in the conversation now to just go away. And we are faring so badly on it compared to other countries. And, and thanks to campaigns like Pregnant Then Screwed, it just it does feel like there's too much momentum for there not to be a major overhaul. But when that comes, I, mean, I don't know, does it take a change in government? I don't know. It's like this is one of those subjects when, whenever you talk about it, you're kind of quite shocked about how bad it is. Mm. You know, we've talked about it before on the podcast. I think the particular thing that struck me is this underfunding of the 30 hours and just sort of what chaos this is creating. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's obviously creating a you know massive problem for providers. Then, then also the 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 payment of the workforce and the level of pay of the workforce, and then how bad we are and compared to other countries. It's not like this is a thing that lots of countries do badly. We are doing it particularly badly. Mm. And yeah, I sort of feel you're right. The change is almost inevitable and it's going to come. But then one has been feeling that for a long time. Uh, but I think it's also important that when you when we talk about things like the cost of living crisis or when we talk about the cost of living crisis, this is a fundamental part of it. It's not some 
it's not marginal to it. And I think there's a, and I think one of the reasons I'm glad we've done the episode is because it is it's generally overlooked and overlooked specifically in relation to that issue of the costs people are facing. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. We're in the outro. I've done a bit of Googling. Googling. And you might be right about your zapper only measuring the surface temperature. Ah. I think the military have some kind of infrared gun that goes deeper, but that goes too deep, if anything. But I'm, I'm not convinced by... Is it Dan, the lifeguard? Yeah. I'm not convinced by his Poundland thermometer either. Why? I think what you need... I've looked into it, and what you need to get yourself, and maybe it could be a birthday present for you, is something called a thermocouple device, and it needs to be attached to a, a long probe. And I think then you'll get a very accurate water temperature. How long is the? Pro- I mean, how deep? I, I, you think, need to go I, I think I sort think of a meter meter long probe should do you fine. So you could tuck this thing in your speedos and then have the have the probe hanging out, maybe trailing behind you as you swim. <laughs> do you think that'll be a good look? I think it'd get people talking. I think it'd be a good talking point for people. And maybe then it could be linked to some kind of Bluetooth device. Yes. Uh, which could then sort of show the undulation temperature because the shallower bits seem to be warmer, which I think is logical. That, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you and Dan could club together to buy one of these uh, thermocoupling devices. One of you could have the device and the other one could have the pro. Thermocoupling device. Yes. I, I just want to thank you for your research. Thank you. Uh, it shows you've got time on your hands. Uh. <laughs> Shall we thank our guests? Uh, Yeah, let's do that. I would like to thank uh, Christine Berry, Kate Hardy and Joelie Brearley. Emma Caution produces the audio for our podcast. All the research and guest booking was done by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed the music and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been looking very dapper. He's been brandishing his zapper. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.